This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, so I'm sitting here and I am talking to Thomas Elpel. And uh, Thomas, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself for everybody listening? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the program here. And um, yeah, I live here in uh, Pony, Montana. And my main um, occupation over the years has been writing. I've published seven books, uh, probably best known for Botany in a Day, the Patterns Method of Plant Identification. Uh, which has sold over uh, 150,000 copies. And so, um, yeah, I got... Um, <laughs> and I am one of those, so... What's that? And I am one of those, so... One of those, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that support, believe me. So, yeah, uh, foraging the Mountain West, uh, participating in nature. It's a little everything covering, um, you know, botany, um, uh, wilderness survival skills, um, house building, green economics um consciousness and so kind of books all over the, the gamut uh plus my uh, most recent book was um 2020 uh about a five-month journey that i took uh, paddling a dugout canoe uh, down the missouri river from the three forks montana to st louis missouri so that that we will definitely have to talk about because that sounds <laughs> super interesting um but before we get into that let's kind of talk about uh, like where, where did you start out? Um, I know your grandmother had quite an influence on you. Um, but where did you start out and first, uh, kind of get into plants and the outdoors and all of those types of things? 
Yes, uh, definitely my grandmother was a huge uh, influence uh, getting me started, particularly on the edible and medicinal plants. But also she had just um, an interest in the survival skills, uh, homesteading, um, self-sufficiency, and that all kind of uh, rubbed off on me. So uh, when I was in high school, I, I fixed up a, um, an old, an antique cook stove, wood-fired cook stove from uh, the late 1800s, and uh, actually still cook on that uh, stove today. Is, that is nice. the stove in the kitchen. And uh, so, yeah, my, my grandmother had moved to, uh, here to Pony when um, I was in high school. I ended up uh, following her, uh, buying land here, building a uh, stone and log, passive solar house. Uh, and um, yeah, so I was been here for uh, she's 33, going on 33 years now. <laughs> Are you in the same house still? Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. And so it just uh, it started pretty, uh, pretty young. Um, I really, the, the interest in the survival skills kind of thinking in terms of the, the shelter, fire, water, food really translated from wilderness skills to how do I survive in the modern world? And so, um, uh, so basically I just didn't want to have a job and I didn't want to have a mortgage and, uh, ended up, um, you know, living in a tent, building the house, and and then not having the uh, mortgages kind of given me the, the freedom to pursue my different uh, passions over the years. Yeah. Uh, but to answer uh, your question, though, about uh, getting started on the survival skills, I, I actually went, um, when I was 16, I did a 26-day walkabout with Boulder Outdoors Survival School in uh, southern Utah. And that was my first real hands-on exposure to the survival skills. It's like I'd been reading books up to that point. But when I got out there, uh, you know, it made like the blanket packs and we're doing uh, flint and steel and bow drill and, uh, you know, edible. I mean, I knew some edible plants then, but um, uh, just, yeah, a wide variety of skills. It kind of gave me a good uh, foundation to, to go on and build on from there. So the herbal medicine and stuff like that, did your grandmother actually like utilize the different herbal medicines or was it something she was just interested in? Uh, she did. Uh, and at one point uh, in her life, when, when she had a stressful period there, she had developed ulcers and you know, the doctor was telling her, well, you've got to eat all mild foods that won't irritate it. And she had read uh, Jethro's Kloss, Jethro Kloss's book, Back to Eden, uh, about uh, taking red pepper, cayenne pepper. And so she tried that. It healed her ulcers. And then she was pretty much hooked from that point out. And so very interested in the, um, the herbal medicine and always, I mean, red pepper every day uh, for the rest of her life. Nice. At <laughs> uh, that point. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, she had an entire uh, pantry that was dedicated to uh, wild teas that uh, we'd harvested and dried. Uh, and then the fact that she cooked on a wood cook stove, uh, she had a pot of herbal tea on the stove uh, every day. And so I kind of grew up with that influence. And, and yeah, so it's it definitely uh, my formative years there. And uh, you know, I'm still doing more or less the same thing. Yeah, so that has definitely become one of my staples now. Uh, what what I actually put into the teas um, has ha, changes kind of on on a you know daily slash weekly or monthly basis, but uh, herbal teas and things I've foraged and dried throughout the entire year 
are definitely incorporated now. Um, was some type of viral something and a little bit of seemed like almost an infection uh, was starting and setting in a couple weeks ago. Um, and I had my whole family and we were drinking uh, yarrow and plantain with uh, some other stuff in it and uh, rosemary even and sometimes a little bit of bee balm and things like that. And uh, I think it I think it actually really knocked it out. So, um, you know, changing that up and, uh, you know, a lot of times it's nettles and dandelion and mint or something like that. But uh, there, there's herbal teas almost nightly in uh in this house now so it, it's That's become fantastic. a routine and and i feel i feel better every night and on the nights i skip it i'm like man i didn't have my tea you know so uh, okay. <laughs> yeah <Very good. laughs> but um is there anything that you uh kind of incorporate into your daily lifestyle as far as the teas go is there anything like that or is it just kind of on a needed basis Oh, I have tea most days. Uh, so I never developed the consistency that my grandmother had. I mean, she never missed a day with the pot on the stove. Uh, for me, I, I get super busy and I'll have a, a pot on the stove that I'm drinking out of for a few days. And then I might sit there and then another day I'll open it up and I've got mold, something moldy in there. So, <laughs> you know, then, so yeah, a real, a real. Yeah. erratic with that but uh, uh but yeah basically uh, always something i think uh i'm going to start incorporating pine needles and pine bark as well mm. into uh mm-hmm. I, I haven't done that yet but i've got a friend that uh seems to do that quite a bit and he even steeps it in a jar and just lets it sit in the jar and you know takes a swig off of it up to you know mm-hmm. days later but uh oh nice yeah yeah so, so that's definitely one thing, but I kind of, I'm super curious about, uh, your home and, and, the the passive solar and things like that. Where, where did that come from? Where was the, uh, the drive to learn about that? And what did you utilize? I mean, back then there might have not have been as much internet at, or at all. Right. Um, so <laughs> well, I mean, just books from the library, old resources. I mean, was it like a mother earth magazine that had some articles or what? That was totally Mother Earth News Magazine. That kind of was the internet of alternative uh, ideas back then. Yeah. And so, and I had collected uh, most of the Mother Earth News magazines and read them over and over again. Uh, and then I also had learned about like slip form stone masonry uh, through Mother Earth News Magazine that I then uh, had purchased some books on that. Uh, and there, yeah, no, there wasn't a lot to go on at the time, but um, there was enough. And, um, so I had I was I was actually drawing house plans in high school, uh, and kind of refining them over the years there, and then um, I basically had um, uh, got married in the pony park here. We'd moved into uh, the tent and built the house, uh, and so our first summer was like doing stone masonry. Uh, second year we did the upper story, the log, uh, the log work here and put the roof on uh that that uh our, so that second winter basically moved into the house uh, we just didn't have any doors or windows or insulation at the time <laughs> so it was it was a little bit cold but uh, we had the stove installed and uh and you can sit on the oven door so one of us could sit on the oven door to be warm the other could stand behind the stove to be warm 
And uh, it sounds a little rough, but, um, you know, I mean, Montana winters are a little on the cold side. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I later realized that we saved like $150,000 in mortgage or uh, interest rates on a, you know, a mortgage by right. building our own home. So, um, so that's pretty good. You know, that's a pretty good wage for, uh, for camping out. <laughs> Especially the way uh, property values are climbing in Montana right now anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> It is astonishing here how things have spun out of control uh, with that. But uh, anyway, yeah, built um, so it, it a big greenhouse on the front. That the um, there was actually a concrete slab here when we bought the place, and uh, so we did a like a poured a concrete wall in the back. And so it's earth bermed up to ten feet deep on the back, uh, eight feet on the east side. The south side is encased in a big greenhouse, and the west side has uh, like two stone walls with insulation in between. And um, so, yeah, uh, just having having the shelter, you know, just uh, really learned to think in terms of those survival priorities, shelter, fire, water, food, and having the uh, shelter uh, just opened up so many possibilities that, um, uh, it, you know, freed me up to pursue these different passions. And, and, uh, and these book projects get to be get to be huge uh, each book project can be as big uh, writing a book can be as big of a job as building a house and uh so they they take they take some time and i uh, it's really the fact that i haven't needed a job that has enabled me to have the time uh, you know since i didn't really have the didn't have expenses gave me the free time to develop a successful writing career yeah that's awesome <laughs> that's so cool to be able to pursue it like that i mean you hear people that say to pursue your passions or your, your dreams. And I mean, you really went for it. That's amazing. Um, especially the freedom, the freedom that that brings, um, as somebody who's tied, I feel like I'm tied to a job. Obviously I could leave it and pursue things, but at the same time, I want to be semi-responsible and, and be able to provide for my children and have to be a little more premeditated about, you know, running off and doing certain things. That's uh, amazing to, to be able to do that um, and and uh, to know more than anything, to know what your passions were at such a young age and follow them and pursue them. Uh, I think a lot of people are s super confused on what they want or, or uh, truly value. And then, of course, those things change. And especially these days, it seems like there's so many adult onset, as they call it, hunters, you know, to <laughs> where... Uh, I'm 35. I'm burned out. I want to get into nature. What can I do? Oh, hey, I watched an episode of Meat Eater. Uh, Steve Rinella looks like a cool guy and he teaches me a lot. So now I'm going out and I'm <laughs> going to do the same thing he does, you know, and I'm sure. not picking on him or anything like that, but it seems to be the trend. And then mm -hmm. all these people are doing that. And, um, you know, it just goes to show, you know, if you follow your passions early on or you have at least your head on a little bit right. Uh, you, you can you can have a pretty cool lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I um, I run this program called Green University. That um, it, it's essentially well, I have, I have an, a a youth school youth program called Outdoor Wilderness Living School or Owls, and then an adult program called Green University. And uh, really, a, a big part of that is uh, getting comfortable with sort of a minimalist lifestyle. And, and like um, I've had students that have come that 
feel like they're you know they're, they're out of high school they kind of feel like they're going to get drawn into the the meat grinder of society in terms of uh you know work and expenses and all that and then they come here and they live simply and and learn that uh, well you really don't need money to live from uh day to day and it kind of just opens up um it's sort of a lifestyle that opens up so many different possibilities um and so because one, one uh, gal was here for uh, for a year-long program, and I think, uh, yeah, a little over a year. She's currently working for a wilderness therapy program in Utah, just came up for a visit. And uh, so she actually has a real great uh, income, and she's happy living out of, her, out of her vehicle right now. So essentially all that money is uh, going in the bank, and she'll be able to put that uh, towards her dreams rather than towards uh, rent. And right. so uh, it's just a powerful thing to learn at that age uh, is to be able to um, kind of avoid some of the traps that, uh, that you know, mainstream society provides. <laughs> yeah, I think it's so cool, the people that are doing the nomadic, the van life thing with, uh, you know, just being like the butter, <laughs> really. It's just uh, yeah. it's too hot. You're getting a little too soft. Go somewhere a little bit cooler. Or, you know, if it's way too cold, move somewhere else and just follow that. Yeah. I mean, if it was me, I'd probably follow hunting seasons and foraging seasons. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. Pretty cool. And I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of friends that uh, just kind of make it a lifestyle and uh, spend months every year uh, either on backpacking trips, hiking hundreds of miles or canoeing or whatever. And, you know, work uh, work a month or two a year and play the rest of the time. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, so, I one of the things you mentioned was the the stone wall with insulation in between the two stone walls on the mm-hmm. south of your house. Uh, I I want to address that. So that is so like the the western sun, the sun where it's longer throughout the day, puts the most solar heat onto the wall and warms it and keeps it warm or something. Is that kind of the principle behind that or no? No, no, uh, that's the uh, one side. Since the um, two sides of the house are earth, earth berms that are protected from the weather there, the uh, the south side is protected by the greenhouse. So, I mean, the greenhouse, um, so we have just like this wall of glass that uh, the greenhouse gets cool at night. It doesn't freeze in there, and I can actually. I don't. I don't have any backup heat in my house. I can uh, leave our in our Montana winters for a month or more at a time, and I don't have to worry about the plants freezing. I don't have to worry about the pipes freezing. Uh, however, the greenhouse does cool off, and uh, particularly right now, it's supposed to be below zero tonight. So um, temperature will probably be uh, this early in the season. I'm going to say 50ish by morning. Um, but it doesn't really get much colder than that, uh, anytime in the winter. And, um, so it's kind of a buffer that we have the house, uh, and then it's protected by the greenhouse. And so, and then of course, when the, when the sun pops up and the, the, we get the 70, 80, 80 degrees in there, and just open the door upstairs and a window downstairs, turn on the fan to circulate that, uh, heat, uh, into the house. Um, so the West side is just the, the side that didn't really have, wasn't like encased in, in dirt or glass. And so the insulated stone wall, the insulation is just stopping the transfer of the heat, uh, there. So that's, that's all that's for. Uh, and the stone is of course, cover up the insulation from inside and outside. 
Um, I, I think a lot of, I mean, there's, there's not a lot of stone houses and those that are, have been built um, usually have uh, stone only on the outside and then would have, you know, like a uh, frame wall and um, sheetrock on the inside, you know, but um, my house is mostly natural surfaces in it. There's not much uh, um, drywall anywhere in the house except the ceilings. Nice. No, that's cool. There's quite a few stone, well, at least there used to be. There's hardly any of them anymore. But um, when I was a kid, I remember a lot of them, especially along the river that I live very close to. And uh, a lot of limestone homes that were stacked stone. And there's mm -hmm. still a few of them around, but most of them are gone. And there was like one or two of them that were still standing that were unoccupied for a long time. And I think one of them just mm. got struck by lightning. But it was so cool to where they had the... It was pretty much a stack stone and then interior walls built and then uh, big timbers for their, their roof. It was okay. Pretty neat looking at them and kind of, you know, maybe walking through one or two of them wandering respectfully, of course, wandering. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious. One of the things I know that you talk about was when you were a kid roaming in Montana, walking all over the place. And then that's kind of slowly changed. Um, as far as trespass laws and things like that, even though their trespass laws seem to be, after I read it, I looked into it a little bit on my own, um, and it seems to be kind of lax as long as there's no malintent or anything like that or theft or anything as far as mm -hmm. that goes. Uh, can you kind of address that a little bit to how you know it's changed from the time you were a kid and all that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, I mean, growing up uh, in Montana, really the... Um... Uh, I just really had no, I had no concept of private land because you could just walk anywhere. And so like if fences were for, for livestock, not for people, that's basically the culture that existed here when I was a kid. And, um, so you could walk to the horizon, you know, just going over fences. Uh, nobody cared. It was just, just the way of life here. And, uh, and actually, uh, when I was 20 years old, uh, a girlfriend and I had walked across Montana, started at my grandmother's house here in Pony, uh, walked east across the state to uh, Fort Union on the North Dakota border. So it was a 500-mile uh, walk, and uh, a good portion of that was on private lands. That was actually the first time I had seen no trespassing signs. It was one of uh, Ted Turner's early ranches here. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it was like this, all these no trespassing signs on a gate. This, we're following an old railroad bed, but there are no more railroad tracks on it. And it was uh, April, there's snow in the mountains. We didn't really have anywhere else to go and um, never really seen these no trespassing signs before. And uh, just not having anywhere else to go, we went over the fence anyway and went went through the property. And we did run into the, the land manager. And, uh, you know, he wasn't real thrilled about it, but being Montana and all, he said, well, just you know, move along. Uh, we camped, camped there overnight. He said, just move along in the morning. And we did. And the next place was posted also, but they invited us in for hamburgers. And <laughs> so that's kind of, uh, you know, kind of the way it was here. And it has definitely changed uh, since then. Um, and I actually, um, uh, friends and I were, did a, did a walkabout a uh, year and a half ago, maybe two years. Yeah. A year and a half ago. Uh, we went out in the moonlight in the middle of a snowstorm on this walkabout 
And uh, one of the guys had lost his cell phone out there, went back for the next day, and it turned into this whole trespassing uh, debacle. I was eventually thrown out of court, but that was a mess uh, for <laughs> eight months. Eight months of a mess. And it's uh, so ridiculous, too. Um, so anyway, things have changed here. And, yeah. Uh, really you, unfortunate. Do you feel that the culture – I mean, because one of the things that you see is – it seems like people were more respectful than they are nowadays. And it just like one, a lot of the youth is unaware of everything around them. They're very self-absorbed and uh, dependent upon technology and just aren't aware of anything around them. And I feel like so many of them are disrespectful as far as the land and they're not courteous or trying to be a steward of it. And, uh, I could see where it creates a problem and a landowner would be upset. Um, you know, I, I live on a Creek and I don't mind it when younger kids go down there and play. Um, Mm -hmm. but when you get to where they're in their teens and stuff like that, they want to go down there, they want to party, they leave a mess behind and all that kind of stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that I don't like. I don't post it or anything like that, even though now I could, because the Mm -hmm. land, the, (laughs) It turned out to be a landmark case, and the courts ruled in favor of the landowner, and it actually changed the water access rights here in Illinois. Um, oh, really? It did, um, and they redefined navigable waters now. So it used to be any body of water that was flowing was considered navigable, and you were allowed to be on it. But mm-hmm. now it changed to where if the owner owns on both sides of the water, it's no longer considered navigable unless a barge can go through it. Wow. So it completely changed it. And it turns out, I I mean, I can't blame the landowner uh, because I've heard the story from a friend who actually knows the farmer. Mm -hmm. And the farmer was pretty big into archaeology and actually would let the state come and do things. And there was other individuals that were coming there up onto his land and stealing artifacts and things like that. And it turned into a big dispute, in which mm-hmm. case um, the first few times he dropped the issue, but it kept becoming a repeat offense, in which case um, it turned into that. So, and yeah. then it went all the way to the courts. I think there were some hunting, other things as well that kind of all came into play. It wasn't just the archaeological stuff, but it, <clears throat> it it turned into, you know, high water marks and disturbing soil and being pretty disrespectful to the guy so yeah but yeah Yeah, i think in terms of uh your question about the young people um the thing i noticed working with the young people a lot is that um they have grown up in cages already um so just wherever they've grown up there there's all these boundaries and they're kind of stuck on the roads um and so they they don't have a connection with the land um they are bored just in the same way that zoo animals get bored and are um psychologically unfit and so <laughs> uh, one thing i notice is that when they come here you know we have hundreds of thousands of acres of public land it doesn't necessarily occur to people that, oh, I can take myself out. Um, you're not necessarily going to go out um, for a hike in the mountains unless like, I organize it and lead it 
um, do something to initiate it because it's just not part of, of the reality. And I've seen this like um, when I had a horse, you know, I'd, I'd like fence off pasture with electric fence and, uh, you know, contain them there until I grazed everything down. And then I take the electric fence down and the horse is walking back and forth and takes a little bit, not ready to cross that line. <laughs> um, it's so conditioned to the electric fence. And so um, I see that a lot with our, our young people that have uh, just grown up where um, they, they've sort of grown up in cages, but they don't necessarily recognize when they're free, that they're free um, when there are no cages. And so uh, just kind of that extreme uh, disconnection. And yes, yeah, so boredom, you, you can't really help but to have uh, vandalism type problems when uh, we're treating our young people like zoo animals and confining them to these spaces. It doesn't look confined because we say, oh, the fence says you can't go in there. Uh, but really, uh, when when people are treated as livestock, we're all on the, um, confined within these, where it's like staying on the roads, uh, then it's really the same thing. It doesn't matter which side of the fence you're on. It's still, uh, we, we've turned into, uh, we've turned into a, a nation of livestock. And uh, really, if you look at the uh, kind of the roots of the uh, the trespassing, it um, started in the South with the uh, the Jim Crow laws. That there used to be, um, you know, a big spirit of um, the right to roam, freedom to roam in the country. But um, with the Jim Crow laws, you know, with, uh, trying to uh, contain black people in the South was to take away their um, any benefits to them that you know so as to keep them from uh, foraging in the woods to keep them from taking shortcuts to town keep them from gathering uh, sticks for firewood or whatever uh, these laws started to be applied uh, for the purpose of um, you know keeping them holding them back holding them down and well what has happened is that it has just spread out from uh, from there so that now we're all affected by it. Uh, we've all lost those rights and we've all turned into livestock really. Yeah. I find it, I find it super interesting. Like, um, is it Scotland? You can walk pretty much anywhere. There's no, no restrictions on that, but there is restrictions, I believe on hunting or something like that. Like the, the people own the game and, and the live, like obviously their own livestock, but also the game. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Think. I've actually written some articles about that. The, um, yeah, the freedom to roam laws in Europe, it varies a lot from country to country, but um, they're not necessarily old laws. The um, United Kingdom, uh, had their, um, they've gone through periods uh, where people lost access and then where they, um, restored access. So the uh, Countryside Ways and Means Act of um, 2000 or 2000, real 2002 or something like that. It was fairly recent that kind of set the pattern uh, for the UK. And um, so they've, yeah, they've got uh, fairly liberal uh, laws there for um, ensuring access. And, and people have actually found that uh, vandalism has gone down. Like one, um, farm I was reading about uh, used to have uh, 
the farm had a fire truck because they'd had problem with people coming in and and uh, lighting fires and, and that. But hmm. once uh, and they thought it would get worse with the uh, freedom to roam, but it actually uh, went down to the fact that, to the point that the fire trucks uh, just kind of rotted into the ground. You know, it wasn't operational anymore because they weren't using it. And uh, but I've, I've noticed, like uh, like in Sweden, very generous you know laws for um hiking camping um on private land but where fishing and hunting is uh very different than how we have it here uh so for example paddling the clarelvin river in sweden the um you go through different fishing that's like the fishing rights are managed by different communities so in an 80 mile river went through like three different fishing districts where you'd have to get a separate permit uh for each one um so you know each each country has pros and cons to their system and and that part isn't great but the uh the access is wonderful yeah that's kind of interesting uh and then you mentioned that with the different fishing districts and kind of reminds me of alaska and the way that the Um, Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Uh, I'm trying to think of the word. The tribal uh, different communities have the say in the rights to the the final say in the wild game management. It's not Mm -hmm. just the state and the biologist but the actual tribal communities and then some of the uh, just communities in general because they're so isolated that they get to have the the final decision and some of them actually just changed it to where no locals can hunt the um, caribou population. I can't remember what herd it was. There was a specific herd. I mean, there's three or four major herds, but... um, They they chose the decision. So even if somebody lives in Alaska, but they live in Anchorage or somewhere, they cannot go there and hunt. Mm. It, it's only locals now. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic sure. how that played out. But it just kind of reminds me of that when you mentioned the fishing districts. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, was your dugout canoe. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to know so much about that. And then the trip itself. Um, <clears throat> so let's start out with the canoe. What type of tree did you use? You felled it. Would was the whole purpose to use all hand tools and do it the primitive way? What was uh, what was that like? All right. So um, yeah, I, I'd had a intermittent dream to carve a dugout canoe. Um, been involved a little bit with the uh, Lewis and Clark. Um, world just as um, I'd, I'd founded the uh, Jefferson River Canoe Trail where we purchased properties for the public along the Jefferson River which happens to be on the Lewis and Clark National Historic Trail and that got me uh, kind of moving into the the direction of the Lewis and Clark history and um, then through that I met uh, Churchill Clark 
who's a direct descendant of William Clark of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And um, that's kind of what he does is travel the country, um, he, as he says, at uh, uh, carving canoes and paddling trees or something like that. So, uh, and um, so I had um, invited him to come up to our Green University program to uh, work together on a canoe. And I uh, had a cottonwood that had uh, fallen down on one of these uh, canoe trail campsites. So brought him up there for it and we we got out there. This was uh, 2018. We, we went out and we looked at the tree and he said, it's too small. <laughs> and then after having arranged, you know, months in advance to get him there, we kind of went into panic mode. And there's not a lot of big trees in this part of the country. Uh, most of our trees are pretty darn small in diameter. And by the time you take off the bark and like the sapwood to get more to the, the really the heart of the tree, uh, you have to start with a very big log. And so we ultimately found a Douglas fir um, at a sawmill that was, um, that was, I don't remember, it wasn't quite 36, maybe 33 inches in diameter. And we uh, got that hauled to camp and started whittling on it. And it wasn't, it's not a normal dugout canoe wood. I mean, people use cottonwoods, ponderosa pines, things like that. I, I don't, I doubt anybody in the history has ever has uh, made a dugout canoe out of a Douglas fir. And for good reason, uh, the, the wood is hard, it's full of knots. It kind of snaps and cracks all the time you're working on it. Um, but uh, we, we worked with, uh, frankly, any tool we could throw at it. So there, we did plenty with the hand tools, the adzes for chopping, but uh, really use the, the chainsaw um, as much as possible. And I've got a tool called the log wizard. It's like a um, joiner blade. So you can um, essentially turn the chainsaw into a little planer. Um, you can kind of scoop out real well with that. So um, yeah, and it still took us... Um, I mean, most of it happens very quickly, and then it just takes the, the closer you get to the end, the slower it goes. And we had a, a functional canoe. We we did our we started in April, I think. We did our first run on the river. We did the Marias River in June, uh, a week long run there, and then kind of went off to other things. But anyway, finished it up in the fall. So we we had like six months messing around with the. Canoe. You know, uh, in there, and um, yeah, and and, uh, and Churchill's kind of way of doing it is uh, there's there's no there's no real actual pre-test. You just kind of loaded. Uh, we actually loaded all the gear in there on the trailer on uh, you know on the <laughs> truck, and then we tested the canoe by shoving it off into the Marias River. And there wasn't a whole lot of water in there. And I thought it's just going to sit, you know, sit, this thing's going to sit on the bottom. But actually, it floated beautifully. Uh, it did have uh, like three little leaks um, where water was coming in, but it was sealed up uh, very quickly, actually. And then uh, the canoe performed fantastic. Uh, and so we got to do that uh, one week on the Marias River in 2018. And then uh, that fall, I started planning for the uh, the bigger trip. It's 2,300 miles down the Missouri from um, it's the headwaters. Um, so Three Forks, Montana is just a half hour from my house. And that's where the Jefferson, the Madison, and the Gallatin come together to form the Missouri River. 
and then it's 2300 miles uh, down to St. Louis. And so, um, yeah, we uh, we left June 1st in 2019 and uh, just really took our time because we were hiking, exploring. Uh, we, we'd take like every fourth day, we would take a rest day. Um, so just trying to go at a very leisurely pace to uh, explore the country in between, kind of as Lewis and Clark did, uh, as opposed to just racing to get to get it over with. And so uh, we we paddled into St. Louis, I believe it was on uh, November 8th. And it was starting to, you know, that was our, I think the first day we had frost, actually. We had another cold, a couple other cold days, but it was our first day we actually had frost uh, when we were paddling. And uh, so it's like, okay, time to, time to wrap it up, you know. <laughs> so let's talk but, about, uh, I, I'm, yeah. I'm curious though, like, so the gear that you, you mentioned gear and you put it all in there. So what did you pack? What did you do for food along the way? Um, like, were you sleeping in a wall tent? What, what, uh, you know, did you keep it like a traditional type tent? Was it just sleeping under the stars? What, what did you do? Okay. Uh, had mostly modern gear. So I just had like an REI tent, um, for the journey. And actually I was, I was quite impressed. It survived the whole journey. That's a lot of use, uh, <laughs> and a lot of weather on a tent, but, um, yeah, it held up well. And, um, so fairly conventional gear overall. Um, the first week was probably our best week of foraging, actually, because uh, it's an area we're familiar with, and we go bow hunting for carp there all the time. Uh, and so with the, the carp and the um, morel mushrooms and all the spring greens and everything, um, did a lot of foraging right there. And uh, never really saw another good place to go uh, to hunt carp after that. We did, uh, there were always greens. I mean, wherever you go, there's something you can, a green you can add to a meal. And so we had that all the way down the river, and that was great. Um, but otherwise, uh, you know, we'd, we'd restock in towns. Uh, and we had quite a bit, uh, I mean, this was a fairly large canoe. Uh, we had quite a bit of room, plus... Um, the fact that the, the the canoe was so heavy, uh, it had its own um, custom trailer, and there's 15 dams that have been built on the Missouri River. So uh, you have to portage around each of those, and this is not a canoe you're going to carry around a dam. So uh, the, the, the trailer had its own journey because we didn't have a backup crew that was following us. We did have friends and family locally that could meet us at a dam and um, help us, you know, get to get around it. Uh, and so the trailer got handed off between friends and family here in Western Montana. But then as we went downstream, the trailer kind of took its own journey as handed off to various river angels. Sometimes just people we met on the riverbank would uh, volunteer to drive it down to the next dam. And so the trailer made its own journey all the way to St. Louis and was there when we got there and uh, rented a U-Haul to, to bring it back. But um, anyway, I had like uh, jars of canned fruits and stuff that we had brought in the canoe and and some in a, a resupply box that went with the trailer. So, um, yeah, we, we ate pretty good. And um, one, of, one of the guys, there were, uh, I, I sort of opened it up to uh, just like put it out to the world who wants to join me. Uh, I do this fairly regularly for different canoe trips. Like, uh, you know, anybody want to come join me to go paddle this river? <laughs> this time it just happened to be a, a five-month-long trip. 
And uh, one of the guys, uh, Josiah, hadn't uh, really had any canoeing experience, but he bought a canoe uh, for the journey. And uh, we told him how to paddle it before we pushed off the bank. And uh, anyway, he had brought, uh, for the first part of the journey, he had brought like a bunch of quinoa and a bunch of cans of like, uh, I think it was black beans or something, uh, just the two items. And then when we uh, got down to Fort Benton, Montana, he went to like Full Tilt, Lewis and Clark, and he spent like $300 on red meat and bought these coolers and ice. <laughs> and then we're like, going down and, and it's like, uh, at this point, it was a month it's a month between towns there from Fort Benton to Fort Peck. Eastern Montana is just super remote. Yeah. And, uh, and so we're, uh, we're just like the five of us going along, trying to eat as much red meat as we could three meals a day before all this, uh, went bad. Um, so, uh, anyway, we, uh, <laughs> we ate well. And as I said, we, uh, we foraged for greens and got into, you know, berries, uh, started getting into the, the ripe choke cherries in Eastern Montana, Got to eat some good wild grapes. And so I got into the uh, pawpaws. I'd never, oh, uh, never yes. seen or harvested those. Well, that was amazing. Um, so I really just kind of loved that foraging component to it. And there was enough people following our journey online that uh, uh, people started coming out and meeting us and kind of whining and dining us. So we ended up uh, having a lot of steak dinners on the way down too. So, so all kinds of foraging. <laughs> nice. So, so what state did you end up in when you ended up finding the pawpaws? Oh, um, that was, um, I believe that was Indian Cave State Park um, in Nebraska near the border with Kansas. Really? Um, nice. So, yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah and the, uh, the 2019 was the, um, the second highest water runoff river year ever recorded. And so a lot of the river was in flood stage. Uh, on the way down, which was Fast better. Traveling. I mean, actually, a lot. Of people... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. Uh, it helped with that. Uh, the uh, a lot of the marinas, a lot of the boat ramps were closed. So even in like uh, Indian Cave, we there was like a patch of ground that we parked on, and then we're like walking down the road, you know, following the yellow dotted road, which happened to be under a foot of water, to go into the park, talk to a ranger, you know, and kind of gave us directions where we could paddle to to get to a campsite. But um, there was, yes, there was a lot of water <laughs> yeah. uh, that year. And uh, anyway, when we uh, got done with this whole thing, I uh, came home and I spent, uh, I, I'd actually been writing a, a newspaper column from the river uh, that was printed in a number of different newspapers across the country here. And so when I got home, I um, spent the next four months kind of pulling all that together and the photos, 700 photos into a book. Uh, five months on the Missouri River paddling a dugout canoe that uh, actually won the uh, Writer's Digest first place award for nonfiction for 2020. Nice. I don't read much fiction. I don't have time for it. It doesn't It doesn't make sense to me. I don't need to escape when there's so much out there that you can escape to. I don't know. That's my whole theory anyway on it. Maybe yeah, I'm wrong. You know, maybe, I, maybe people do need an escape, but to me, the, yeah. the, the world is out there. Go explore it. Sure. I, I love fiction, but just don't have the time for it, you know. <laughs> the other things, you know. I like I like, you know, uh stories of people's uh like one man's wilderness or something like that to where it's you know, um uh, just something to where they go out, they find 
you know, their passion or what what they wanted to do and, and uh, establish something, which I think is pretty cool. Um, like, uh, I'm trying to think of the guy's name, but uh, he, he ended up building the log cabin up in Alaska. Um, mm-hmm. Ah, gosh. Oh, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, but he documented it, and it was some of the first, like, video footage of, you know, that era of people uh, building the cabins and that kind of stuff with the whole, uh, in the, what was it, in the six, 50s, 60s, and 70s, or 60s and 70s uh, with the um, homestead claims out there. I'm trying to think of. Um, yeah but anyway yeah richard prenke was the guy's name that's it Uh, so so he did all kinds of video documentation he kept journals that were so meticulous and accurate that uh the state actually used them for wildlife surveys and different things and utilized his his journals so pretty cool guy um but like just stuff like that fascinates me it's not like that that to me is way cooler than something that somebody made up i mean i don't even know how people come up with these things that they come up with with different uh fiction things but um but uh for sure you know uh but yeah so your wood stove what's fascinating is i've been watching a little bit of the waltons lately (laughs) they always cook on a wood stove so I always thought to myself, like, man, I want, I want a wood stove like that. So yours was from the 1800s, which is like, does it still have like a warming drawer and stuff like that on it, or is it? Uh... Yeah, yeah, there's a warming oven above it, um, little pan door under the oven, um, and yeah, it's probably I'm gonna say like maybe 1895. Um, yeah, so it was a majestic, and it was um, um, picked it up at a garage sale, and it had been like the bottom was completely rusted out. So it normally has like a one inch uh, strap of metal that goes all the way around the base. Uh, but because of the rust ended up uh, removing that one and riveting on a two and a half inch wide strip just to kind of cover up the jagged, uh, you know, rusted edge there. So I ended up rebuilding, um, you know, some of the doors and quite a bit of restoration work on this. This, this was uh, my senior year of high school, last half of my senior year. It was pretty easy, you know. I had um, like four, four. Well, I had two art classes, an independent study, teacher's assistant. I had four hours in the art room. I had a metals class too, so <laughs> I just like finished all my schoolwork before graduation. And uh, so the, the my art teacher actually found this stove at a garage sale, told me about it, and I brought it into the school and did the restoration work there uh, in the art room. And then I uh, just needed to build a house around it. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. <laughs> so have you ever had another stove in that home since since you've built it? Or is that the stove for cooking? Uh, no, I have a hot plate that I use in uh, summer mostly. But, um, and, you know, with the uh, global warming, the uh, we get longer and longer time each year where um we can't use can't safely use or would want to use the cook stove in the kitchen so just get out the hot plate and cook on that but um uh yeah it just seems like it uh, grows longer and longer it used to be just a few days of summer where you wouldn't really want to cook on the wood stove and uh and now it'll sometimes be two two and a half months straight where um either it's too hot too dry or just even too smoky from the wildfire wildfire smoke you don't want to 
start a fire. So, um, but I, it, it's great when, uh, when the cool weather comes back and, uh, fire up the wood stove and it's actually, uh, the main source of my hot water too. I don't, I don't have an electric water heater and I have a gas water heater. I have a solar water heater in the yard that, uh, is the primary water, so hot water source in summer. The wood stove generates hot water. So, uh, uh, it takes like maybe 20 minutes when the fire's going but to have enough for a shower. Doesn't take long, really. So I really have um, hot water almost all the time, and um, I put in uh, solar panels to generate electricity. Turn the meter backwards. Uh, put those in in 2002. So that zeroed out my power bill. Uh, so yeah, no mortgage, no power bill. Just always a deer laying on the side of the road. So free meat, <laughs> you know, gonna have roadkill. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just been, uh, I mean, it's kind of foraging lifestyle, I guess. Uh, to me, I mean, um, I even like, uh, just driving home the other day, I, I stopped to throw some, uh, trash in the dumpster and there's like all these little cutoffs, two by four cutoffs. And so I just boxed up, uh, those, like, well, here's a, you know, free, uh free days one day supply of firewood foraged out of the dumpster yeah. Know, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you it's been a great way to... do you do much hunting uh you know i really never have i, I really had that interest i, I always I assumed that i would i guess uh when i was younger particularly to get into the uh the primitive archery make my own bow and arrow go out hunt a deer just i mean it's kind of the thing to do i guess is um the stories I read that were inspiring. Um, but that uh, takes a tremendous amount of time. And um, uh, I think partly just kind of being, especially in the fall, always have projects I want to do before winter. And then the fact that um, the deer's already laying on the side of the road, uh, they're all the time here. So it just doesn't really make sense to to pass up perfectly good meat to go uh, True. spend yeah. all this time, you know, climbing over the mountains, trying to find something to drag back. So, um, no, it's never really needed to. <laughs> but, I mean, I yeah. like the, the small uh, carp hunting. I love doing that. Um, and otherwise, yeah, mostly just throwing uh, rocks and sticks at small game is <laughs> the most hunting I've, I've ever done. So when you, like, uh you're saying like a a bang stick, like a kill stick, like throwing uh, a throwing stick, and throwing knocking sticks, out yeah. rabbits or whatever. Yeah, yeah, or uh, throwing rocks at squirrels, uh, that kind of thing. So. <laughs> and <laughs> wait a minute, so you can throw a rock good enough at a squirrel and knock it out that you don't need to club it, or what? What do you do? <laughs> I'm curious on oh. that one. Well, you know, uh, this kind of here's the one uh one time we were out um hiked up in the mountains we were camping uh you know and our, our squirrels are pretty small here you know we've got the red squirrels um our, our uh, lodgepole pines of these super small cones little tiny nuts in them so the, the pine nuts are small the squirrels are small and um so we got up in the mountains here uh near hollowtop lake above my house and there's this uh, red squirrel in the tree, and, and I think there was three of us, and so you know we each picked up rocks and chucked it at the squirrel. We all we all missed, and so we uh, squirrel went a little bit higher, but it was, it was within reach. 
And um, so we kept throwing rocks and it just kind of found this like perfect spot where it was visible, but we couldn't hit it. And so we each threw like a hundred rocks, so 300 <laughs> rocks total at one squirrel and never got it. But, you know, all of that practice, of course, uh, you know, it's not, we don't live this way every day. And so, um, you know, if, if you're, if you're hunting every day with rocks, you'd actually be very good at it. And um, anyway, the next morning I went out and I saw a squirrel on a branch and I threw a rock, hit it, killed it first, uh, first shot. And so um, it just takes a little, there's a little muscle memory. You got to wake up there and then. Uh, yeah, I do not have that. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd much rather throw. use an arrow or some yeah. other projectile. <laughs> and it's similar. I mean, you got to, you got to practice with the bow and arrow. Yeah. The same thing. And once you get that practice in, then yeah, you can do it. <laughs> so I, I'm surprised that you haven't done the. I saw the other day though that you uh, did. You have somebody out to the. Was it the owl school or something that you did uh, uh, flintlocks or something? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, that was part of our uh, Jefferson River Canoe Trail group. Um, uh, yeah, local guy who uh, builds uh, muzzle loader rifles spends. Um, it's been like up to 300 hours uh, building a gun, doing it, you know, really exceptionally nice job on it. And so it was a thrill. He came out uh, to our school and uh, talked to the students about um, building these muzzle loaders. And then we went out and uh, each fired around and it was, yeah, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 degrees out. So we, um, it's very short. We didn't really have winter gear. <laughs> Well, we didn't really have winter gear for this, so it was a very short uh, shooting session. But we each, each got to fire a ball, and that was fun. Yeah, no, that's pretty neat. I uh, I always picture back to like Lewis and Clark expeditions or something like that when you and it'd be pretty cool to do like a dugout canoe trip and take a deer or something like that and sit there and salt cure the meat or you know just something fun like that. <laughs> that's how I yeah. envision it in my head, but. Uh, yeah, we actually uh, one year we paddled the uh, the Bighorn River in South Central Montana, and uh, we left the house here, and we found we ended up finding a a roadkill deer. I think it was just like three miles down the road, and you know just threw a, a tarp over my students' laps and, and um, <laughs> threw the deer on their laps, and we uh, we we butchered it and then brought it out on the trip in the cooler, but. We actually did, uh, once we got out on the river, we built it like a smoking rack and made the jerky and smoked it and dried it there uh, on the trip. And um, yeah, it's great. No, that's pretty <laughs> cool. That's pretty cool. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about the like plant identification and stuff, if there's one thing you could tell somebody that would help them as far as families or something like that, what would it be? And I think you already mentioned it to me, but... Uh, you know, for, for everybody else listening. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my book botany in a day goes into the plant family patterns. So if you know um, a pattern, like say for the mustard family, that the mustard flowers have four petals with six stamens, that's the male part of the flower It'd be four tall stamens, two short stamens. So, so you just have to remember that much information, four petals, six stamens, four tall, two short. That'll identify any mustard uh, positively. There's uh, over 3,000 of them in the world, and they're all edible. So right there, you just learned 3,000 edible plants. And um, 
really the best way to learn these. I've, I've got this uh, game. So I wrote a children's book, uh, Sean Leia's Quest, uh, a botany adventure for kids ages 9 to 99, and then later made this uh, card game that uh, covers the plant family patterns for the eight families in the book. And uh, that's actually my preferred way to teach, and I do this at the different primitive skills gatherings uh, that I go to, uh, work with adults. Uh, and so just um, playing these games, and within an hour or two, you can learn the essential uh, identification characteristics for like 40,000 plants to their proper families. And so you can um, learn this plant identification, and in many cases, uh, their uses, uh, just knowing these basic family patterns. And uh, to me, the family patterns are really incredible because uh, unlike when you're dealing with in plant, instead of learning plants one at a time where every plant you come to is new, um, with the family patterns, you see something new that you've never encountered before and you recognize immediately, oh, this is related to something I know back home. And so, uh, you know, traveling around the world, you can find plants you've never encountered before in your life. You don't know their name, but you might know uh, their edible or medicinal uses just because you know what they're related to. Yeah, that's an awesome, awesome way to look at it, too. And that's uh, that's something I'm trying to do and, and definitely learn a little bit more. So uh, it's been awesome talking to you. Uh, interesting uh, adventures for sure. And uh, before we go, though, where can people find you and uh, find all of your books or do classes, right? <laughs> so, Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, so the uh, publishing company is uh, Hops Press, H-O-P-S Press dot com. Um, and then so that's where the books are and all my websites are tied together. So if you go to uh, the school, greenuniversity.com, you'll also be able to get to uh, my books that way. But uh, yeah, adult programs through uh, Green University. And um, one thing we do each year, we do a, a two-week botany and foraging intensive. And so this coming year, we'll be going to Oregon. And so we, each year we explore a new place and uh, just dive deep into uh, plant identification, wild food foraging. And uh, we do some like permaculture tours, sustainable living, throw a little bit of everything uh, in there. It's a lot of fun. Come join us. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, mule there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. For in the Join me, Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois, and the whole crew here at Duck Camp Dinners every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Birds of